And that's something I very much miss in the pandemic, um, you know, in this endless Zoom life and screen life, virtual life. We, we're just living without all our senses, without some of our, most of our senses, touch, smell, spatial orientation, all of that. It's, it's a very reduced way of living. You just heard the voice of the British author Deborah Levy, who is my guest on today's episode of How to Proceed. In this edition of the podcast, a podcast we decided to start making exactly a year ago when the world as we knew it changed, Deborah Levy talks to me about living and writing in a pandemic. She talks about confronting reality with humor and patience without sentimentality. The choreography of writing, she says, includes an understanding of both intimacy and formality, the personal and the political. Good writing, regardless of genre, is to write about other people. The I, she says, is always a we. My name is Lynn Ullman, and together with the House of Literature in Oslo, I've created the podcast How to Proceed, where we engage writers from around the world to reflect upon reading and writing, art and creativity, and the world we live in right now, still in lockdown, in the historic year 2021. Deborah Levy was born in South Africa. Her father a political prisoner, her mother a startling figure whose life and death haunt the pages of Levy's living autobiographies, Things I Don't Want to Know, and The Cost of Living. Levy and her family left South Africa when she was nine in 1968, came to Britain and grew up in England, and that's where she's lived since. Mothers and motherhood are central themes in Levy's work, as are home, travel, place, and exile. Deborah Levy has won many awards for her lifelong engagement with form, ideas, and language. She is the author of plays, essays, short stories, and novels, such as The Man Who Saw Everything, long-listed for the Booker Prize, and Swimming Home and Hot Milk, both shortlisted for the Booker Prize. Her living autobiographies, Things I Don't Want to Know and The Cost of Living, are remarkable, and I can't wait to read her third upcoming installment, Real Estate, a book she discusses in the episode you are about to hear. As we were getting ready to record this podcast, we experienced a lot of technical difficulties. Nothing worked. I couldn't hear Deborah. She couldn't hear me. It seemed everything had broken down. And while things were resolved and we could proceed with the recording and the conversation, I started thinking about brokenness and how without it, new things like this podcast, like this episode, wouldn't exist, at least not in the way they do. In all of Deborah Levy's work, there is a sense of brokenness. In The Cost of Living, the phrase undisclosed hurt is repeated several times, often as a question. Yet in Levy's writing, brokenness, hurt, sadness, grief, fear, is not the end of all things. It's not the end of the story, but a beginning of something new and mysterious and perhaps even joyful. I guess we're going to start now, but I just want to say 
Thank you so incredibly much for waiting while we were having all these technical difficulties. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, everyone is having such a hard time. I think we have to actually be on each other's side because what else is there to do? So uh, we've solved it and, and, and here we are. And I am so grateful for your graciousness. Maybe this pandemic is just teaching us to be thwarted you know, just to, uh, things don't go right and you have to handle this. And um, I'm a very impatient person usually, but somehow I've found a new kind of patience or is it resignation? I don't know. What do you think it is? Patience or resignation? Well, we know that when we have children, we, we find a new kind of patience in ourselves. So, that's a training of sorts. And then um, now I think it is really, I'm hovering somewhere between the seven stages of grief with this pandemic. Right now, I think I'm between depression and acceptance. <laughs> I want to almost officially also say to you and to our listeners, welcome to Oslo. Welcome to the House of Literature. I am here in what used to be the children's room in the House of Literature, but all the little pillows and the little toys are taken away and it's just an empty desk with a chair and the windows open and, and the laptop. Um, where are you? I'm in London. <clears throat> I'm in uh, my apartment. I'm sitting at a long wooden table I have some spring flowers on the table, some daffodils that have opened this morning, and there's a splash of uh, color in the room, yellow. Um, I'm concerned because they are cutting a tree down outside my apartment, but I think they might have gone off for lunch. Um, it's a misty day, a misty March day, and... Um, when I woke up this morning, I thought, oh, another day. And that, um, I don't think I've ever approached a day like that, another day. This is three months in lockdown now in England, and uh, it seems endless. But I have my bicycle, and this is a good thing in my life. I can hop onto it and I can cycle around the city, stop off to buy a takeaway coffee or some fruit or a fish for, um, for supper, that kind of thing. It's really a very simple life at the moment. Is this the bicycle that you ride about in The Cost of Living? It is. Yeah, my e-bike. Uh, it's an electric bike. In fact, Lynn, I, I write again about my e-bikes in the third part of my living autobiographies, real estate, because now I have not one, but three. So I have a fleet of electric bikes. <laughs> a fleet. Yeah. And when people come to visit me in the days that we could travel, it was always my pleasure to open the garage and, and everyone would have a bike. You talked also about the tree outside your window. What kind of tree is it and why is it being cut down? That's a good question. I don't know why. It's a horse chestnut tree. Maybe it's being um, 
pruned, you know, but they're big branches coming down. I'd been peering out of the window a little bit anxious about this, but they seem to have stopped. And in the living autobiographies, I think it's the first time I've really used place, the place that I live as a setting. You know, that tree is in my books and the garage and the bikes and the big views over London, uh, living in a a big apartment block in North London in the pandemic is is really interesting because we go down in the elevator one by one. And so sometimes the elevator stops on the third floor and I'm in it and there's someone waiting to get in and we just nod at each other and um, that person waits as I would wait. So all these small understandings not really talked about in meetings and no memos sent off are really, um, I think, a, a very delicate part of human beings living together, just making decisions to keep each other calm and, and, and well. I find that very moving here. Do you write about the pandemic in your third living biography? No, um, that's that's such a good question. Um, I had a very good working draft of the third book, Real Estate, and uh, and it was finished before the pandemic. And so I had to decide as I worked that draft, I decided not to put the pandemic in because it would change the whole book so completely, the whole center of of gravity of, of the book would change. And it felt it felt like the wrong decision. But um, interestingly, I have now begun work on, on my next novel. And, um, and of course, I'm uh, at the very beginning of it, and, and you know what that's like. And um, it seems to me that I can't not have the pandemic in that book. So I think there's a retrospective um, mood, actually, that the pandemic might give quite a few writers. Um, so I don't know. I, you know, that's what I'm saying now, and I'm right at the beginning. But that book will be about the doppelganger, uh, a, a hu an identical human double. And I thought it might be interesting um, for them to meet with masks on where you only have the eyes to read and the expressions on the face are so covered, you know. So so maybe that's where it will appear. Yes, I thought about this is interesting with the masks and and how we meet with masks. And I was just, yesterday I was walking past a person who I really wanted to smile to because she looked like she needed uh, someone to smile. Yeah. But I don't know if she could see it because I was covered in, in a mask. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Well, you don't know what you're communicating, which is really odd, isn't it? Because we spend our whole lives um, trying to disguise our expressions and... Um, 
so so it's a sort of conceal and reveal, isn't it? Where you want to conceal what you're feeling, and and then you want to reveal a smile to support someone, but you don't know you don't know if it's if it's seen. It is it is very strange, and I and I think people feel quite low in a mask. They take away. There's so much less to read. So we have to look at the rest of the body, the shoulders. Um, the posture at the eyes really such a lot such a lot in the eyes you know i want to i wanted to return to this uh question about the body moving and and um, the body moving through space uh which i think is a, is an important thing that happens in in a lot of your work but i always start also by asking what are you reading right now Ah, well, um, I'm reading a few things at once. I'm um, reading a biography of Francis Bacon. It's called Revelations, and it's by Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan. I, I often like to read about visual artists and their process because it seems so different from writers. And I also have mostly only taught writing in art schools, Um, and there's a, there was a big quote from Bacon on the back of the book, and I think it's what made me buy it. And the quote is, the job of the artist is to deepen the mystery. So I thought, yeah, I, I, I think that's true, because the point of art is to create as many dimensions as there are in life itself. If you paint a tree, uh, do you want that tree to look like an exact replica of the tree or why not take a photograph so that so you're going to do something else with the mystery of that tree so I kind of like what artists what visual artists notice in the in the visual world so when, when I was when I kind of walked uh, down a street with my students the things they notice are so interesting like like the drains in the pavement Oh, that's very well made, isn't it? Look at that texture. How have they done that? Have you seen the drain pipes? How did they get them to hang from the top of that building? And look at that curve there. I really found that um, an interesting way to look at the world. And I guess that's what writing is about. Um, you know, it's a bit like that Allen Ginsberg quote, notice what you notice. Exactly. But you also said, Um, there's a lot I want to unpack in what you just said. You, you said that it was the visual artist process is very different from writing. Uh, you spoke now in, in ways that they are alike, but how do you think they are different? Yeah, I, I have made a sort of connection there, haven't I? I suppose it's a concern with the physicality of things, the materials, um, the design, the way, the way they connect. And obviously, I, I guess that Those are all things that writers think about too. But, um, but you know, we, we've just got this pen in our hands and this digital screen. I like the physicality of the studio. Uh, my friend in Berlin is a sculptor. She's just always like lugging really heavy materials, looking at them for a long time, touching them, stroking the material, whatever it is that she's working with. I really like that, you know, all the sensors have come out to play. And that's something I very miss, 
very much miss in the pandemic, um, you know, in this endless Zoom life and screen life, virtual life. We, we're just living without all our senses, without some of our, most of our senses, touch, smell, spatial orientation, all of that. It's, it's a very reduced way of living. Your work is also very sensual. It's something that I pick up in both your memoirs and your novels. I mean, this touch is important. Smell is important. And just this awareness of, of everything around, you know, awareness of an insect, of a flower, of grass, of animals, of other people's smell and voices. It's, it's just such a, an acute awareness of the sensual. Well, I, I, I'm pleased to hear that because, you know, we have to make uh, the act of reading. A, a th books have to be a three-dimensional space, don't they? With, with um, Especially if you uh, have, um, if, if there's an urgency and an energy to, to, to the book, Sometimes it's 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 good then to calm the writing down a bit <laughs> with something else, with with um, the smell of grass or or the smell of petrol um, as a car goes by, just something else to, to create a, a, another mood. You mentioned the word mystery when we were talking a little earlier. Mm -hmm. Mystery in the sense of a question that you try to answer. So every time I start reading a book of yours, there's, there's this question that needs to be answered, the, a mystery that, that needs to be, if not solved, then at least explored. There's this sense of something unknown. And well, in one book, I mean, you, you, the, the, the phrase undisclosed hurt is repeated again and again. Mm -hmm. So what is this mystery undisclosed hurt in your work? Is it is it the same undisclosed hurt or are the mysteries different in every book? Yeah, so so I think um more generally a sort of general answer to that is that I I I don't like books that overexplain that or all that strip everything down to something so coherent um, there is nothing to find out um, and that um, you, you know it's it's almost as if the words die on the page so I think that there that there is an idea that if you write in a certain sort of way or you're writing for a particular market. You're going to make it so hyper-intelligible. You've really, the writer has really robbed herself of um, the, the pleasure of deep thought that leads you to somewhere interesting. Um, then on, more particularly in um, things I don't want to know, the mystery is that the female narrator is um, standing on an escalator at a train station and the escalator is carrying her upwards and she finds that she is crying. That's something odd, that, 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 that the escalator, um, the momentum of the escalator brings on these tears. So what the mystery is, what is she crying about? And later on in the book, 
begins to slowly be answered. And what has come to chase her on those escalators are quite a few things. But the mystery is, 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 is the cause of those tears. What, what, so the past has come to chase her in the present tense. And so when you work like that and you're not continually stripping enigma, you're not continually over-explaining, um, I think we're working at a more human-friendly level of consciousness. And I guess the, the trick in the narrative strategies of writing is to somehow include all the irrational or most fragile moments in life to sort of fold all of those into the texture of a <clears throat> strong narrative that's moving forward. I don't want to lose the kind of steely strength of that narrative, but I want it, but I want to fold into its texture. Um, synchronicities, the uncanny, moments of doubt and fear, vulnerability, um, messing up. I'm wondering about chaos and messing up because both your memoirs seem to come from something broken, something that's been messed up, something that's been hurt, something that's been wounded. So do you think that good writing almost requires us to mess up first? <laughs> I don't know. I feel I, I'm always uh, very reluctant to prescribe what writing should be and uh, all of that. So, so in my writing, put it this way, you know, if, if a character doesn't have a problem in a stretch of writing, it's hard to know what the story is. Um, so it is true to say that in the living autobiographies, there is a, there's a, there's a breakup of a long marriage. There's the making of a new home. There's the chasing of a, of a historical past, um, as well as a personal past in the politics of apartheid South Africa. There's the move to England. There's um, keeping a home together for children. There's the delight of making a, a new space, um, a, 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 you know, of, of, of new human attachments and connections. Um, there, there's a lot of struggle, all of that. So, so those are in the autobiographies. And then I'm just thinking about the, the, the fiction. So, so in The Man Who Saw Everything, um, you know, in one sentence, I could say, well, that's about a man trying to cross a road for 30 years and stuff happens. Or I could say for um, Swimming Home, that's about a, a, a fragile young woman who gate crashes into the home of a, of a family and their friends on a holiday in the south of France and who believes that she is in telepathy, that she can read the thoughts of the male protagonist for whom she has written a poem and, um, and, and she wants him to read it. Your 
memoir or living autobiography, things I don't want to know. For me, it was certainly a page turner about sorrow and also about home and and leaving home and coming home and not coming home and and the whole idea of exile. And I was wondering, Deborah, if you could read from the beginning of that book. Yes, I can. I, this is from Things I Don't Want to Know, you mean? Yes. Yes. Actually, just coming out in Norway now very soon, in a few days. It is. I'm, I'm excited. And I have to say that the opening of that book, and I very rarely say this, but it I was very sorrowful at the time that I read it and something shifted in me. So very few times you open a book and you read an opening of a book and you actually say something shifts or this almost changed my life a little, but this did. Uh, Thank you. So I start with a quote from Jean-Paul Sartre, his play, No Exit. You are your life and nothing else. That spring, when life was very hard and I was at war with my lot and simply couldn't see where there was to get to, I seemed to cry most on escalators at train stations. Going down them was fine, but there was something about standing still and being carried upwards that did it. From apparently nowhere, tears poured out of me. And by the time I got to the top and felt the wind rushing in, it took all my effort to stop myself from sobbing. It was as if the momentum of the escalator carrying me forwards and upwards was a physical expression of a conversation I was having with myself. Escalators, which in the early days of their invention were known as traveling staircases or magic stairways had mysteriously become danger zones. Thank you so much. So one of the things we do in this podcast, Deborah, is we try to have a ever long ongoing conversation where the questions are as important as the answers. And we've already talked about the importance of posing a question and the importance of questions in, in your work. But we also have then each guest poses a question to the next guest. And Edward Louis has a question to you that I'm going to read to you now. Okay. And he says, Dear Deborah, in the autobiographical book on his mother, A Sorrow Beyond Dream, Peter Hanke says that the reader of the book would probably feel less involved and committed if the book was introduced as a fictional book. Did you feel that you were taking a bigger risk in switching from fiction to autobiography? Is there, in your opinion, a political and social strength of autobiography, like when you talk about saying I in the two first volumes of your trilogy? Mm. Oh, that's a very big question. I've been thinking a lot, Edouard Louis, about uh, the use of the first person I and the I. And I think your question is, does this make me more committed, politically committed, to the 
issues and to the problems and to to the, the, the politics that I am investigating in, in the books? Well, yes and no. What I wanted to do in the autobiographies was to create an eye, a narrator, who was spoke very intimately to the reader, but also very formally. So, so, so I had to find a voice that could do both those things at the same time, because I, I think um, as a reader, I need that. So, so I had to find that voice. Um, I don't see fiction as apolitical. I don't see it as less potent than, than my autobiographies, actually. Um, and in some ways, my fictions are more autobiographical than the memoirs. I know it's such an odd thing to say. Um, I, I think there's a, 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 a there is part of me in every single one of my characters. So it's more disguised, of course. So, so the characters are, are my avatars to speak for me in fiction. But because the imaginative space in fiction, it offers me so much. I think one can be extremely political in the way that Edouard is suggesting in, in, in a fiction. And um, I don't see memoir as being more so, actually. Perhaps in a way, um, the, the female narrator is more rhetorical, like um, I'm just finding the cost of living now on the table. You know, she can, um, she will say things very boldly in, in a manifesto-like way now and again. And, you know, to separate from love is to live a risk-free life. What's the point of that sort of life? That would be very different if it was a character, wouldn't it, in a novel? But you still call her she. It's interesting, when you're talking now, you speak of her, the narrator, she, she says this, um, but she's written, but you write her as an I, and you call it an autobiography. Yeah. You say that you can almost be more truthful or more intimate in fiction than in the memoirs. So who... Who is yeah. that narrator, the I, in your memoirs? So the narrator, the, the I in the memoirs, is absolutely myself. Uh, and then there's that Virginia Woolf line, uh, <laughs> like myself, but not quite myself. This is a very... This is a very approximate translation, Some, something like that, like myself, but not quite myself, because the narrator is also an artifice. You are creating a persona to and a voice to steer the book. Um, so, 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 yes, the narrator is very close to myself, but not quite myself. have a wonderful um, quote at the beginning of The Man Who Saw Everything uh, by the writer and critic Carl Teige. Is that how you pronounce the name, Teige? I think it is, yeah. Teige, Teige yes. And, and the quote is, 
poetic thought, unlike rootless orchids, did not grow in a greenhouse and did not faint when confronted with today's traumas. Yeah. I love this quote, and, and I think you could probably have it as an epigraph in, in many of your books. Um, yeah. but, but I was wondering when I read that, and we were talking about political writing also, that today are, are we, uh, as readers and as citizens, more and more like rootless orchids, fainting with when confronted with today's traumas and <laughs> and are we shying away from poetic thought and shying away from thought altogether mm. so poetic thought is really a very good instrument to to open the world and somehow touch on political thought um, on politics, I don't see another way of doing it for myself. Um, you know, maybe I would have been a journalist, uh, maybe in in the style of Martha Gellhorn. I, I love her, her her writing and her essays, or of Orwell. But um, I do think we have to confront today's traumas, and our poetic thought as an instrument, as a way of of, of opening, of unfolding, of, of making images and metaphors and of confronting very difficult times is, 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 a, is good. It's certainly for me an instrument of communication. And you, you, you strip the poetry out of everything and you just have a virtual existence like we have at the moment, you know, and um, there's no touch, there's no taste, there's no sweat, there's no beating heart, there are no tears. Um, so poetic thought, I, I see, I see it as uh, something that the 21st century can step into, and actually many young poets are stepping into in um, in the UK and elsewhere. Ocean Vuong, Emily Berry. Um, are two poets that that come to mind, um, and certainly Lynn. You know the the biggest uh, bookshelf really in my home are the poets and also plays. I was thinking today when I woke up and I thought, oh, another day. <laughs> um, I was thinking about Samuel Beckett's plays, ha play Happy Days when the character Winnie, who, who in this play is buried up to her neck in sand and the lights go up and she, she says, another day, uh, another happy day. In the, in the pandemic, it's a sort of, oh, another day to get through. Um, unfortunately, it is, it is a bit like that, but a, a good day today because I'm, I'm speaking to you but my point is, is that, you know, I think Beckett must have actually felt that without the pandemic. We, so we have to laugh. Um, and and humour, you know, is, is a big, is, is another instrument in my work. Um, I, I hate it when people call humour comedy. Um, I, I, I don't understand that. But, but humour is a way, an unsentimental way, uh, you know, also in response to Edouard. 
Louise question of confronting reality and what we avoid is sentimentality and abundance of something that isn't really felt. That's the thing, isn't it? What, what's the point of writing if nothing is felt? So um, there are strong feelings in, in all my work. You talked about humor and feeling and, mm. and the visual arts. And I know that you, like me, love the work of the choreographer Pina Bausch. Yeah. And I think about her even before I read that she is someone that you love. I, I thought about the choreography of Pina Bausch often when, I, when, I, when I've been reading you precisely because there seems to be some, a kind of choreography in your work. And I guess my, my question is really, how much does, does dance and choreography play into your, your work? And how much do you think about where the bodies are in the room when you, when you move around, when you move the characters around, you know, toward each other and away from each other or where they're completely alone or if they're together? Yeah, well, that's so astute of you. I mean, definitely. I, I love Pina Bausch. In fact, um, in, my, in my apartment, I'm, I'm looking over now to, at a big framed photograph of Pina's Rites of Spring. And um, I have one in the bathroom. I have one in the hallway. Um, so what I... Uh, learnt from Pina Bausch is this thing of um, an intimacy and a formality because you, you know, for, for all her shows kind of have those two qualities of, of a, a formal structure um, that is very designed and, um, and then the, the, these intimate dancers and, um, And, and bits of text spoken. My favorite text for Pina Bausch is a, a dancer walks to the front of the stage. She's in a long dress. She likes her body. That's another thing, liking their bodies, you know, such a different, all different shapes, different cultures, um, a sense of great empowerment she gives um, The, her male and female dancers, and uh, so so this so this woman walks to the front of the stage. She's holding a glass of wine in her hand. She's got a feather boa around her neck, and she says, "Hello, come in. My husband has been away at war," and that's it. <laughs> and you you kind of you you kind of. Um, this triggers other stories in 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 my mind you know ah so he's away at war and who are you welcoming in and um and all of that um so I like the way she gives every single one of her dancers tremendous dignity they feel in every sense fully expressed you know they the way the women and men move in their various costumes 
uh, and and they're usually quite formal costumes, you know, long dresses, silky dresses, and dress suits. They feel so. They feel as if they've come from a world that I recognize. Pina's characters, and I want my characters to come from a world that that readers recognize. I love the imagery in her work and the mood, and the way that she, in particular, works with women. They just feel her dancers feel. Um, I don't know, they, they can be as erotic as they like, as angry as they like, as gentle as they like, depending on the piece. There's a tremendous freedom and, uh, in, in the vocabularies and it, the choreographic vocabularies that um, she explores with them. And um, so, so that's what I learned, intimacy, formality, Never let Eros fly out of the window from the work. Let Eros come in, open the windows, let Eros fly in. And then film, Lynn. I mean, film is really a big influence on the structure of my writing. I learn a lot from film, really. What, what did you learn from film? Um, techniques for storytelling, um, rhythm, uh, long takes, scenes that can that go on for a long time, and and that can that still hold my attention. So I'm thinking of Godard here in uh, Le Même Prix. Um, I'm thinking of jump cuts. I'm thinking about close-ups. So maybe you know I'm writing and I want a close-up of a character's hand. I'm thinking of the, the notes that Olmodovar gave to one of his actors. Maybe it's in his film with Pina, actually. Um, in, the, in, in this film, there's a theatre rehearsal for Lorca's play, Blood Wedding, going on. And there's some women washing clothes. And Olmodovar's note to one of the actors washing clothes is, your hands are kind. That's all it is. That's a great note. And uh, it's the sort of note in a way that I I kind of give myself sometimes when I write. And um, That your hands are kind? Yeah, your hands are kind. Oh, or... it, I think that's be beautiful. And, and, and it reminds me so much when you say that about the sequences or the passages about your mother or the, the mother and uh, the narrator's mother and the cost of living and, and the mother's death and the little ice cream yeah. Uh, yeah. that you, you buy the, 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 the ice cream. Yeah. They're called lollies, lollies. Yeah. Ice lollies. The ice softies in Norwegian softies. Okay. Uh, and the, and she takes these to her mother because it's it, to your mother because it's the only thing that she can eat. Tell me about about that chapter about writing about about that. Yeah. So so my way in to writing about my mother's death were were the ice lollies, the softies, because this was a real a real thing. She she could only eat um, 
Uh, she had throat cancer. She was in hospital. I would go to the news agent and I would open the fridge. It was February, it was winter, and I'd be looking for these ice lollies. Um, I never explained myself. I never told them um, why I wanted these lollies and why it was so urgent. And these were kind brothers, you know, Turkish brothers who... <laughs> who had I'd often come to the shop before and we'd talk, but I was in no mood for talking really during the time of my mother's dying. And um, so one day they um, didn't have the flavors of the softies that she liked. And they had this. What were the flavors? There are three flavors one that's good, one that's okay, and one that's not yeah. so good. And then one horrible. Yeah, so lime is best. <clears throat> then strawberry, that's good, and orange is okay, and um, and then they'd run out of these flavors, and they had they'd invented a new flavor in this brand, bubblegum flavor, and uh, and I knew that she would hate this, and I couldn't really say something like, "Look, my mother is dying; she can only eat these ice creams. How is it that you only have bubblegum?" flavor in your fridge oh my goodness so so that was the route into uh writing about my mother's death and it helped me you know because i could see that it was it made me laugh and cry as i wrote it i could see that um it it was a way of making something very difficult acceptable to myself and 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 to my reader I was very surprised, Lynn, to write so much about my mother. Um, there, there was a time I, I, I said to my publisher, when he had read a draft, I said, tell me honestly, you know, because other people's mothers are not so interesting. So if there's any time I'm boring you, don't be, don't think I'll be offended. Just, just say so. Um, and um, he said, no, no. I'm not bored. I'm not bored for one second. And I had to believe him because um, all these years in such a difficult relationship with, with my mother, it never occurred to me that I would have so much to say about her. And indeed, I, I go on in real estate to write about her and um and I thought, oh no, not you! You, 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 making an appearance again. And yeah, she does. There's one time in that book in real estate. I am in Paris. The narrator, who is myself but not quite myself, is in Paris, and she she looks into the mirror, and she sees her mother, her mother's face, and her own face. So I saw. Um, what every woman is brought up to to fear, you know, um, about aging. But actually, the truth of it was, I was so happy to see her. I could see some of my mother in my face, and it didn't feel like a bad thing. It felt like a good thing. It felt suddenly, it, 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 it was a flip of all the societal expectations I said, oh, well, hello. And um, that got me very interested in the doppelganger as a theme because although really I, I, I don't look that much like my mother, we have the same cheekbones and um, maybe some 
some similar expressions. But I thought, oh, that would be interesting, an interesting take on the double, where you sort of see yourself in a very different way in the face of someone else. So, So my mother seems to have entered my autobiographies, Lynn, and um, I never tell her to go away, but I do, um, she seems to offer me more and more, actually, so I have to thank her. She sort of comes back to me as a spectre with information, with thoughts and feelings and moods and um, political positions and regrets and, and, and joy, actually, as well. Um, and I never expected to be so haunted, actually, by her. May I ask you, did she... So, I mean, you write uh, from daughter's perspectives, you write from a mother's perspective, sure. uh, you write about motherhood itself. Did your own mother, did she visit you in your writing room while she was still alive, or did that start after her, her death? No, I think it started, um, absolutely started after her death. Um, I think, um, what what is it that Susan Sontag says about death? Uh, the, is it the great disappearance, I think is, is, is her phrase, something like it, the great disappearance. So that's what it felt like, and it, it, it was that, great disappearance, that, that, that exit that somehow brought her um, closer to me, I think. I, I, can see, I can see the logic of that. Um, you know, it, it takes someone leaving to really, to really understand them better, to see them, to see them with more complexity. That's it. You know, just to see it, it's, it's the complexity of that um, mother-daughter relationship. And not just in, in myself, actually, I began to understand that the I could just as easily be a we. Annie uh, Arnaud, the, the French writer, wrote an autobiography called The Years. Mm. Arnaud was translated so late in her own life that for me it's almost like reading a new writer. But in the years, which, it, which she describes as a collective autobiography, um, she uses the we. We put on our pajamas. We turned on the television um, and listened to de Gaulle. Um, we realized that we women realized that we had been robbed of some of our freedoms. We didn't know how to get through Tuesday. So she uses that we and that they and makes it a collective autobiography. And that actually is also an answer to Edouard Louis' uh, question, is that I think that if writing is working, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, if we're making a connection uh, first with ourselves and then with our readers, the I is always a we. You mentioned Susan Sontag and uh, the great disappearance. I've been actually reading 
uh, or rereading Susan Sontag uh, these last few weeks side by side with rereading you actually, uh, reading especially um, illness and its metaphors just to see uh, and yeah. thinking, you know, and AIDS and its metaphors and thinking what would Susan Sontag write about COVID-19 and its metaphors. Yeah. But, you know, we all people now are emailing each other and Zooming each other and, and talking about things they miss uh, during lockdown and things they will do when the lockdown is over and things they mourn and grieve for and long for. And you wrote in an email, and it was just so lovely because you wrote that what you missed was swimming. <laughs> yeah. And swimming is such a, well, it's a, it's a, it's a big part of, of what you write when you write about your mother. You write about her swimming, but swimming is also there's so much swimming in your, in your books, in your autobiographies and in your, mm -hmm. in your, um, fiction. So what is it with you and swimming and water? Right. I, I, um, I wish I knew. Uh, so I swim every day, uh, when the world is normal and, um, I swim in pools, I swim in rivers, I swim in ponds. Swimming is that stretch of the body bit like flying. We know that writing is a very unhealthy job. <laughs> you're just, you're sitting down. If the writing is really going well, I think you, you're sitting in a pretty weird uh, and terrible position. And, um, and so it's a time also for the mind, like a meditation, I suppose. Uh, someone said, well, Deborah, now you can't swim. Why don't you try meditation? I did try it, but Unfortunately, it's still all in the head, and um, and swimming is so much in the body, um, and that 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 incredible stretch, um, the feel of 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 the water on your skin, the emptying of of the mind, which is so important, you know, um, which meditation is supposed to do, but. Um, You know, if you've been writing and or, or or life is very full on, so great to just empty the mind, as as swimming can do, and let something let something else come in. Sometimes I can solve a writerly problem in the water much better than on the page. I just suddenly know how to do something that I didn't know how to do before. The the sort of embrace of the water. So I, I, that's how I experience it. It's sort of like, like an embrace. And then just getting out, tingling, the body stretched, the hair wet. I never wear a swimming hat. I really like to have wet hair. Why? Why do you really like to have wet hair? I don't know. I just like the sensation of, the, of, of wet hair and... Um, You know, water is my medium. I at the moment I feel like like a fish on a, a stranded on a beach, and the sea has fled, um, and I just have to live with this. So, I look forward very much to to swimming soon as uh, things get back to normal. Um, I miss other languages. I like even when I don't understand 
other languages. I really like sitting, hearing something really simple, you know. It's like having a coffee or a beer in a cafe in another country and just hearing another language, the rhythm of it, the the the, the construction of it, and just the sound of my ear. That really, that's that is something I miss a lot. I think it's uh, it's a terrible feeling to be for everybody. I know everybody misses travel, but it's not really kind of sightseeing sort sort of travel that I miss. Uh, because most of my traveling is is for my books. So it's those uh, moments and when I was last in Oslo, my Norwegian publishers took me out for for Mulfrit by the harbor. And we had a beer and talked and there were there was a there was a sort of tango dancing class actually that had begun at the harbour. So there was a very strange, almost Pina Bausch moment where there were couples dance, being taught how to dance the tango while we ate moulfrit and drank beer. And whether I wondered if it was warm enough to dive into the sea. Um, I miss attachment and, and other people and parties and just sweaty crowds of people because the weirdest thing, Lynn, is writers are supposed to be okay in this pandemic because we spend so many hours alone and you can't write without having a taste, you know, a really big appetite for solitude. But the odd thing is that I, I, I realize that um, when I'm sitting alone writing in, in the pandemic and I, I, I sort of cast my mind outwards into the world, and it's a sick world at the moment. Uh, the, the world transmits so much to me, to my writing, that in this time when we're all struggling and it's unwell, it's very hard to get something to work with. But now and again, I, I do. And um, when, I, when, when I kind of write a page, I, look, I think, oh, this is no good in the pandemic. This really isn't. It's really it won't do and somehow I look at it the next day and I think you know it's all right it will do so I, I, I think for all of us we have to see we won't know yet really what the pandemic what living let's, let's not call it the pandemic living with such uncertainty and living with such fear we don't know yet what it will bring to to the writing do you have any Guesses? Mm, well, having written a whole book called Real Estate, I think that what I get from the pandemic is that we are all temporary tenants on the earth that is our home, you know, something like that, uh, something really very obvious. We must treat our Earth better, our planet better, uh, because this is our home and we are temporary residents hosted by the Earth. So that feeling is stronger in me. We talked a lot about the, the question from Edouard Louis to you, and now I'm 
wondering if you have a question to our next guest, who is Edvich Dantekat. Uh, yeah, I do. Let me just find it. So my question is, how have you been sleeping during the pandemic? And do you regard this as a literary question? I can fully disclose that I regard it as a useful question for a writer to consider, but perhaps you disagree. Deborah, I think it's a wonderful question. So I have to then ask you, how have you been sleeping during the pandemic? Oh. And do you regard this question as a literary question? If so, why? Yeah. Um, okay, so I've discovered my sleeping has really changed. Um, it's not that I'm awake at night uh, like like an insomniac, but um, I go to sleep without the stimulation of a really whole busy day with the world lively um, and lots of physical contact and and all the rest of it. So I'm going to sleep in a different in a different mood, and it's as if the sleep doesn't quite. Um, re-energize me I don't wake up feeling full of energy you know it's as if I wake up a little less tired than when I went to sleep and my position has changed so now I sleep on my side when I think once I slept more on my stomach and I think I sleep on my side at this anxiety it's sort of like um it's 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 more Sleeping on on my stomach is sort of like a more uh, tranquil sleep. But sleeping on my side, oh, maybe I'll have to get out of bed more quickly. Uh, my dreams are very vivid, very strange. Um, and uh, sometimes I write them down, sometimes I don't. Um, I'm aware that my breathing is... Um, sometimes slightly anxious. So instead of that uh, calming down, going to bed, um, it actually reminds me a little bit of uh, my children when um, they were around six or seven and the whole concept of death was something new for them when their grandmother died and they were anxious about death and they want the light on, you know, they want the light on all night in a way Sometimes I think I really want the, the lamp on at night too. Um, so it is a literary question because uh, going back to the body, what it, it would be very boring, wouldn't it, just to say she slept and when she woke up. It would be more interesting to know how she slept and embody the anxiety with breath, with the way the eyelashes um, flutter on the cheeks with what we see behind our eyes, with the heartbeat, with what your toes are doing, um, and, and, and really with that sort of wash of anxiety that we repress because we have to be strong for others and get through the day, but somehow they do surface at night. On this note of sleep, I think we're going to start rounding off, and I hope that we will meet very soon. It's been such a pleasure speaking to you in Oslo. Deborah, thank you so much. I can't wait to see you in person for our next conversation. 
I hope. Thank you so much. This podcast was produced by the House of Literature in Oslo. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and please check out our show notes for links to some of the things Deborah and Lynn talked about.